So everybody here got a insert with our beautiful new members. I just found this in the, the pictures. You guys are very photogenic. Um, if you do go to Church slash next in uh, the upcoming headlines and happenings, which is a weekly e-blast e that we send out, you'll have some names and faces. So you get a chance to, to connect all that. So again, welcome to our new members. So great to have you here. Well, a few years ago, Laura and I were heading down to Florida, and I just placed my bag in the uh, overhead compartment. I stowed my table. T- stowed my table, tray table, in the upright position. This is why I'm not, I would never make a good flight attendant for all kinds of reasons, but that would be one of them. Um, I fastened my seatbelt, I settled in my seat, and I took out this book. Along with a pencil and a highlighter, I was ready to dig in. And that's when the guy who was sitting to my left asked a question. He said, what are you reading? And that was a loaded question because of the book and because of why I was reading it. So I purposely decided I'm not going to unload on this guy who asked me the loaded question. So I just said, it's called The Tipping Point, and that's all I said. And then he said, what's it about? And I'm thinking to myself, he seems really interested, but I'm going to give him one more chance, because I'm a preacher. <laughs> you know, I'm going to give him one more chance um, to either move on or to open that door wider. So I said, have you heard of Malcolm Gladwell? And he hadn't. I said, Gladwell's got a whole lot of really interesting insights about how people think and why they do what they do. And this book is about how do you take an idea or a behavior or a trend and how does that spread? So without even pausing for a second, the guy says, okay, what idea, what trend, what are you wanting to spread? So I took a cue from Nehemiah. If you were here a couple weeks ago, I did my little flare prayer. I sent my book down and I said, here we go. For about a year, I've been thinking a lot about blame. Blame, he asked. I said, yes, blame. And the rest of the conversation that I'm about to tell you, this is not how it went exactly word for word, but this is the gist of how it played out. I started by sharing with him what I've been sharing with you. And he was tracking with me point by point, almost to the end. And we'll work our way to the almost. So I started out, here we go. Blame is a really, really big deal, I said to him. And I want to invite you to write that down too if you're taking notes. Blame is everywhere. It's a really, really big deal and it's everywhere. And here's what I discovered, I told him, as I began to try to understand blame at a deeper level. The blame goes back to the beginning. People who believe that we evolved from more primitive life forms and people who believe that the Bible is literally telling the truth um, there in Genesis both agree that blame goes back to the dawn of humanity. And to my surprise, he said, this is interesting. Go on. So I did. People, I said, have two deep primal needs. The need to feel good about ourselves and the need to feel loved and accepted by others. Our brains are constantly assessing our world and situations for things that appear to threaten those two deep longings. And all that's happening faster than the speed of thought in what some people call the monkey part of our brain. The primal instinct centers of our brain, they're trying to help us. When that part of our brain senses our self-image or our social status is being threatened, our brain then triggers that same physical response that it does when we're physically attacked. And can you see why that's a problem? He goes, absolutely Absolutely. 
attacking, defending, deflecting, they're not always our best options. So, and I'm not exaggerating, at this point, he's tracking with me. He's not just tracking with me. He's now starting to tell me stories from his own life about blame. He's saying things like, I see this all the time. And his partner starts nodding along too. Keep going, he said. So I did. And I shared with him what I shared with you about how blame holds us back when it comes to circumstances. That blame reinforces glass ceilings and blame keeps people from discovering their capacities. Blame is a slippery slope to shame. Blame makes it harder to find a fix. And along the way, he's doing it again. He's sharing examples. He really locked into that whole idea of the victim mentality. He said, oh, I've seen that. And he gave examples there. He said, there's these other people. They were in these really hard circumstances. They overcame them. And then when I started talking about shame, that's where he got really passionate. He said, oh, shame is such a big deal. And he said, those religious people, he said, those religious people, they are all about shame. Religion is all about shame. And then he says, by the way, what do you do? <laughs> I looked at my spouse and said, well, I'm a pastor. And you should have seen his partner just, she's looking down like trying not to just lose it because this is evidently not the first time his mouth got him in, in trouble. Well, after apologizing, he says, go on. And I shared with him what I shared with you about blaming others. And he's still tracking about how blaming others creates a battlefield. That blame turns potential allies into adversaries. Blame triggers a triangle trap. Blame is a slippery slope to scapegoating. And how blame makes it harder to find a fix. And man, he was resonating with this too. Especially when we were talking about these like toxic work environments. He's like, oh, I've seen that. Politics. He could have went on forever of all the blame in politics. And then this is where I pause to add that this isn't the blame never project. It's not the blame never project. He said, oh, I'm so glad you said that. Because if this airline had crashed three planes in a row before I got on, I'd want to know why. I'd want to know why. And then we had a great conversation about how you can't trust or create any kind of healthy community without truth, without real accountability. So then that naturally transitioned to a conversation about the blameless project and what it is we're trying to do. We talked about how humans have a unique response ability, that we can embrace that space between the stimulus and response, that we can literally renew our minds, that our words create worlds, and the blameless project is about creating the world that we all want to live in. And I told him a story. I, when I was first thinking about a series on this, I'm like, okay, let me go online. Let me find some information. Let me find a hub where we can talk that talks about all of these things and where I could point people to. And when I typed in blame space less on Google, it didn't say it was a thing. It kept redirecting me to blameless one word. 12.5 million links specifically to the word blameless. If you put blame... Um, if you try just the blame space lesson, it redirects you to both of those things, then it's 1.6 billion. So you can find a redirection. You can find 12.5 million links to the word blameless. And when I typed in, typed in blame never, 300 million. 300 million links to never blame or blame never. But according to Google, blaming less is not a thing. So I said, you asked me why. I was reading the tipping point. If enough people have the conversation that we're having now, this could be a game changer. It could be a game changer for individuals. It could be a game changer for families, for couples, for teams, for businesses, for nonprofits, for our nation. 
And he said, that's right. It could. So then I got very specific. I said, here's what we're going to do. We're setting out to create something that could be really, really helpful that doesn't yet exist. We're going to try to create a blameless project, a new nonprofit that inspires and equips people to blame less. Not never, just less. We're going to create a hub at theblamelessproject.org where you're going to be able to find masterclass coaching, curated resources, support and inspiration. And so here over the course of this conversation with a complete stranger, we had so little in common (laughs) when we were talking. We saw a whole lot of things differently. We didn't watch the same shows. We didn't vote for the same candidates. We didn't believe the same things about God. He shared how he and his wife loved to vacation with other nudists. That is not a way that my wife and I choose to vacation. But when it comes to believing that our world could be better, if more people would blame less, we shared a lot of common ground. Except for the next thing he said. As the flight attendants got in place to prepare us for takeoff, he said, here's the problem with what you're trying to do. I said, tell me, what's the problem with what we're trying to do? He said, people don't change. Or actually, I think the way he said it specifically was, you can't change people. You can't change people. And I could read from his body language that he had thought he just mic dropped me. So I'm like, you know what? Okay, conversation's done. He wasn't ready to go where we're going to go together today. What he said is true to an extent, right? You, you can't change a person. But what you can do is you can inspire and equip people. And they can decide to change. So, in fact, if, if, if we were to ask you, let me ask three questions, really. Question one, have you ever had someone inspire and equip you to change? Have you ever had a teacher, ever had a parent, ever had a supervisor, brother, sister, an author, an influencer? Have you ever had, with a show of hands, how have you had somebody inspire you to change? All right, we all have, okay? So we know that it's possible. Question number two, is anyone in this room or anyone watching want to live in a world where more people blame less? Okay, so we know that people can be inspired and equipped to change. We want to live in a world where people blame less So, here's the question. How do we inspire and equip people to blame less? That's where we're trying to figure out however long it takes, the next year, two years, five years. That's what we're going to try to do. And for the record, setting out to do what we're trying to do is not going to be easy because you got some people like you can't change people. You're also going to be going up against, we are going to be going up against an uphill battle against our own biology that tempts us to blame right away. Many of us were going up against our upbringing where we saw blaming modeled all the time. Most people don't realize what a big deal blame is. You start talking about this and they're like, well, it's not a big deal. Others, they're going to accuse us of gaslighting. They're going to say we don't have enough empathy or compassion or we're siding with their enemy. We're going to face algorithms that are designed to turn people against each other. We're going to face the motivation that so many people have where you get higher ratings or you get higher profits if you take the low road. But... This is good and important work that we're going to do. So let's use our God-given responsibility to address a crucial need that isn't being met. Let's do it together. Last week, I invited you to take a look at the Old Testament book of Esther. I hope you had a chance to do that because just about every principle that we have been discussing 
throughout this series, it's in there. It's in the book of Esther. For those of you who are in a small church, a great small church discussion would be to go through Esther and to go, what principles do we see in Esther? Where do we see these things we've been talking about? The better ones, the not so good ones, where, where do we see this? And what happened when people applied them or didn't? But with the limited time we've got here today, in the final part of the series, um, what I'd like to do is draw your attention to just a few passages in Esther. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Esther. We're going to start in chapter 2 here in just a minute. And what I want to have us do is some draw some hope, some inspiration, as we start talking about trying to change. Not the whole world yet, just our country. As we talk about this, we're going to look at what looks like an impossible challenge. Because this young, orphaned girl living in an occupied land, she's faced with a life or death situation and the annihilation of her entire people group. That's what she's facing. So what can we learn about responsibility that's not limited to our own ability from somebody who is the absolute lowest, the absolute lowest level of society? So here's the context, and then we'll read a couple passages here together and talk about them. This is a true story. There's different sections of the Bible that are poetry, different sections of the Bible that are called parable. It's like a story that Jesus told. This is history. In fact, you may have heard of the King Xerxes, the powerful King Xerxes of the Persian Empire. He had a wife, this queen, and the book opens, the story opens with a cautionary tale where he makes an example of his own wife. He says, if you ever disobey like this woman did, you know, let her be the example to all of you wives out there throughout the kingdom. You don't disobey. You don't not submit to your husbands. So he had just gotten done showing this example for all the men in his, his, his kingdom. So that's how it opens. And then it describes on the complete opposite end of the power scale that there was an orphaned Jewish girl named Hadassah. You may know her as Esther. She was taken in. She was cared for by her cousin, Mordecai. And through a series of events, she becomes queen. Now, I don't think she would have chosen that path on her own. But through all of this, through all of this, this narrative, we see that Esther never presents herself as a victim. And we also see the hand of God. He's moving chess pieces all over the board as only he can. All right. So, for example, let's take a look at one of these passages. Chapter 2. Let's do um, verses 22 through 23. What happens here is one day Mordecai, the cousin that had taken her in, he overhears a plot to assassinate the king. A plot to assassinate the king. And here's what happens, verses 22 through 23. And this came, this assassination plot, came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Then the affair was investigated and found to be so. And the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. All right, so let's talk about this just a little bit. Blameless principles are everywhere, for better and worse, here in Esther. And in this case, there's an accusation is made. So someone's being blamed, and what did they do? They investigated. That's a positive. Instead of just... Jumping, oh, someone made a blame. Let's let's believe it. They investigated, it says. And a verdict then was rendered. So that's an example of blaming well. People were held accountable for their actions. That's good too. All this is going to later demonstrate that God is at work even when we don't see it. Because Mordecai, he saves the king's life, but all they did was write it down. 
All they did was write it down. Mordecai doesn't get honored. And you could be Mordecai and go, what in the world? I just saved the king's life. Like, why is there not some kind of parade with me in it or something like that? But instead of starting down that dark path towards self-pity, especially in Mordecai's case, when shortly thereafter, he finds himself in the crosshairs of a rising star in the king's court who is a real enemy. So you could be blaming God at this point. God, I'm doing the right thing. Why am I getting attacked here? What's going on? When we blame less, we learn to blame better. And we see these principles here in, in Esther. He's not getting honored the right way, but that's actually going to help him out later. It's going to help him out later. It was actually helpful for him to not blame the situation. And as he starts to see Haman and he starts to see, I think this guy's an enemy. He's right. And that's, He's blaming correctly there. So you see that, that you've got uh, Mordecai. He's, he's blaming less, but he's blaming better. All right, these actions by Haman are really blameworthy. Let's turn to Esther chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. When Haman saw Mordecai didn't bow down to him or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had been made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy who? All the Jews. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom. Letters were sent, jumping ahead to verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the instruction to destroy, to kill, and to what? Annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children in one day. Now, just so you know the background here, originally I was going to do Galatians 6 for this closing message. It has some great things in Galatians 6 about you reap what you sow, you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. That was my plan. I'd even written that down. But I was going on a walk and I was praying and I'd forgotten that I'd written that down, which is why I write things down. And I was, I was praying, Lord, what text do you want you know, to use? And I, it was Esther. Okay. So just so you know, I didn't pick this because it talks about annihilating the Jews. What I will say, though, is those words, I could feel them when I was reading, to see annihilation in black and white. You know where my mind went? The Bible is very, very clear for the record. The Bible is very, very clear that like all people, Jewish people are tainted like, by sin, like, like every person is. So that's not where I'm going. But unlike all people, they have a long history of being targeted, including targeted for death. Again, for the record, what's happening across the ocean is very complex. It is very complex. And that said, I am struck by the failure on the part of so many to even acknowledge, to even acknowledge that the Jewish people have been enslaved. And in the past, they've been targeted for annihilation on more than one count in a way that most people can't identify with. Now, again, please be very, very careful to not say something that I'm not saying. But please also be very, very careful not to blame and place blame on the nation of Israel or declare them blameless, either one. Also be very, very careful before you cast blame on every person in Gaza or declaring every person in Gaza blameless for what it's worth. All right, back to our text. Mordecai. Mordecai got word to Esther. And Esther replied, well, what can I do if I go to the king without him calling for me first? And he's not okay with that. Quote, there is but one law to be put to death. 
so Esther says, what choice do I've got here? I, I, if I go to him and, and tell him what you want me to tell him, and, and he doesn't say, hey, come on in, I'm dead. Here's how Mordecai responds. These words, I want to read them straight out of the text here. These words are some of the best known words in the Old Testament. This is chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai says to Esther, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for what? Such a time as this. Consider the faith and the courage of this young woman when she replies. So she replies this, verses 15 through 16. Then Esther told them, these people that Mordecai had sent with this message, reply to Mordecai, go there, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And what does she say? If I perish, I perish. Talk about courage. Talk about faith. Well, does the story, for those that know it, does the story end in the death of Esther? It doesn't. How about the death of Mordecai? It doesn't. How about their people? Like Nehemiah, there's a period of fasting, wise planning, and the one who has every resource at his disposal was moving pieces around the board like a chess chess master. Haman's plan backfired, as that kind of blame usually does. Remember how Mordecai's actions um, went and how they were written down, but he was never honored? Guess what was read to the king one night when he had insomnia? What was written down? And he's like, oh, do we ever honor that guy? And they're like, no, we need to honor him now. Guess who he had to honor him? Mordecai, Haman. Haman had to run around. Hey, everybody, this is what happens if you honor the king. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, guess, yeah, who the king chose to honor Mordecai, Haman. Guess who was executed on the very spot where Haman planned to execute Mordecai? Haman. And guess who wasn't annihilated? Esther and her people. Victor Hugo once said this. He said, no force on earth can stop an idea whose time has come. And if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write this down. The Blameless Project is an idea whose time has come. We had a strong sense way back in January 2020 that this teaching series wasn't just for us. And now, three years later, we got capacities we didn't have back then, like a studio. We have people that have joined ECC who weren't in our orbit. Back then, people have skills and experience creating curriculum, podcasting, writing books, raising funds. People have influence with other people who are uniquely positioned to help us in this movement as we're moving forward. And those of us who keep our fingers on the pulse of culture, we can sense there's a groundswell right now for people who are primed to have this conversation in a way that wasn't true in, in 2020. I mean, can't you just sense right now? You talk with people, they're like, I'm just so sick of everyone blaming each other all the time. I'm sick of what we're seeing in Washington. I'm sick of what we're seeing in toxic workplaces. I'm sick of what's happening online and how we're putting people against each other. I'm sensing more and more people are like, 
I'm tired of this. What if? What if we can give them some language? What if we could give them some resources? What if we could give them some help? Maybe you're noticing that there's more and more whistleblowers who are going public about those algorithms and about the influencers, about the politicians who are benefiting from blame. Now, there's always going to be people that are going to accuse us. Anytime you talk about blame and taking responsibility, they're going to accuse us of gaslighting. They're going to accuse us of, of not being sensitive. But can you imagine if we would have tried to mainstream this message in 2020? It, it, it would have just, it would have been the wrong time. Those headwinds would have extinguished any flames that we had tried started to fan. And it wouldn't have been appropriate in that time, in that season. These days, I'm, telling, I'm feeling a sense of urgency with this. I really am. And this isn't for everybody, but I know it's for a lot of us. Feeling a sense of urgency. And again, prior to reading Esther, part of it was very specific. It's been happening actually for the last year, especially if Emmanuel's not going to run with this, I think I'm hearing this whisper. All right, I'll find someone else who will. I want us to have a shot at this, you know? But this is an important message, and I feel like I'm hearing that. This is our time together. You know, Christians, we talk a big game often. Hey, let's go out and reach the world. Let's try. Let's actually try. At the core of this blameless project, we're going to have seven courses, roughly based on what we just did here. Um, here they are. We're going to have the blame space less. We'll do an introduction. We'll have the genesis of blame, how blame goes back to the beginning, blaming circumstances, blaming others. I want to dedicate an entire part to shame and scapegoating. We just touched on it here. I think it's really important we go deeper there. And then we'll have a part six that says, hey, join us. Let's, let's share this. And then part seven. So what we're going to try to do with this content, we're going to try to develop the content in a way where you could bring it to a secular or sacred setting. You could bring it to your school. You could bring it to your teams. You could bring it to um, a family. You could bring it to a business. So you want to try to do that. But then I want to have that part seven be, like if we have a subtitle, I want to call it like content for the curious. Hey, if you found this helpful, I want to share our motivation. And that's why prayer is going to have to be at the center of this, that the Holy Spirit's going to open people's hearts. Because that's where I want to go. And you know the scriptures we've been working through? That's where I want to put those. You know, when, when, when science says that uh, we can renew our minds, let's take a look at what it says in Romans. When science says blame goes back to the beginning, I want to tell you this beautiful story from Genesis that we were created with intent, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, that every person bears the image of God. How beautiful will it be to be able to, when they're talking about blaming, you know, not blaming circumstance and using responsibility, let's go to Nehemiah. And let's show what can happen. You're not limited to your own capacities, but you can invite the very power of God into your life to guide and direct you. Let's talk about, when, instead of blaming others, let's go to the words of Jesus and the vision that he cast for the community. And when it comes to shame and scapegoating, you know how few people have really heard a real presentation of the gospel these days? And to talk about the blameless one word, the blameless one who laid down his life for us and how coming out of that, we can have grace and compassion for other people. And as we talk about bringing this forth, telling the story of a young orphan girl in an occupied land named Esther who realized she was uniquely positioned for such a time as this. I think that's going to be fun. I want to film that one in a chapel somewhere. I think that would be so cool. 
Well, throughout the course and other resources, here's what we're going to try to do, those who want to be involved in this. Our vision is to inspire and equip blameless ambassadors in every state and a growing number of sectors, meaning like healthcare, education, sports. Why do we choose ambassador? Because ambassadors, there's a more intentional level of living and training than there is with an enthusiast or some of the other words we use, advocates. You know, and I love how an ambassador is a representative of another culture. And that's what we want to have. People who are living this, who are living in blameless life. And like, I'm living in a different world. And I want to tell you about it. And to be clear, this is not going to be a pyramid scheme. <laughs> when we say ambassador, it's not, okay, pay this money, get this. You know what? No, it, we want to offer all this for free. That's the only way I see this working, for free. And people are not like some sort of like, I've paid all this money and now I'm trying to get you to do it. So, But instead it's like, no, this really works. This is important. This is how we change so many things. So how does one become an ambassador? Complete the course, live the lessons, share your stories. Well, it has been so encouraging to look back on how God has been blessing this idea so far. If you were here in 2020, you kind of heard it a lot, kind of went silent because we had a lot of stuff to do behind the scenes. Here are just some of the things. I, I encourage you to write this down. We've been busy, and we also have unfinished business. Let me tell you about the busy part first. Just so you can see, this is real. This isn't like we're just making this thing up. We're, we're, we're serious about this. Here's a very quick summary about where we're at, what's next, and how you can help. Let's start with where we're at. When these ideas started first coming, there was a whole lot of personal prayer and discernment. God, are you in this? Are you trying to move this thing forward? I then said, I don't want to just discern myself, invited all kinds of people in, trusted specialists, advisors, you call Emmanuel home, trying to help discern this with me. We then brought a proposal after a lot of conversations and um, about a new nonprofit. We just, we, after talking to the specialists, said like, if you try to put this on, under the umbrella of a church, it just doesn't work. So to create an up, okay, well, if we're going to do that, then we need to <laughs> make sure that we think this thing through because these things can also blow things up in the wrong way. So we vetted it through our staff, our elders, our pastor relations committee, our nominated committee, and the elders affirmed this is the way to go. A new tax exempt 501c3, it's going to reach a wider audience and it's going to potentially open up new resources and revenue streams for Emmanuel if we can do this right. We've been busy. We want to make sure we looped in the congregation. We invited everybody to come join us at a town hall meeting so you could learn more, offer feedback. We assembled a board. We created a new nonprofit. We filed articles of our corporation, approved bylaws. We filed for and obtained a 501c3 tax exempt status. We just got that last week. We've been busy. We crafted a covenant to say, how does this work with the church and this new thing? We secured domains, handles, and trademarks. We created a logo, developed a landing page. God provided a social media and project management specialist who's doing this for free. And we introduced the 2.0 version. That's what we've been doing to the Manuel family. That represents a lot of work. I want to say thank you to our elder boards, especially the elder boards as we were processing this, praying this back in the day. I want to thank you, say thank you to Tim Stenerson, a man who helped us keep moving forward. I want to say thank you to Steve Kruger, who is providing the legal expert um, advice and guidance and work. Nate Morris, who's helping us with the website and branding and all this for free. And Megan Bethke, who's going to help us with the socials and a plan to reach, bring this out to the world. So that's where we're at. Here's where we're headed, church family. First thing we're going to do is winterize this. Why do I use that term? Because my first priority is to this church. And we've got Advent coming up. 
and we're going to focus on Advent. And we got snow camp season coming up, and we're going to give everything we got for our young people. So we're going to winterize this. There's a couple of details we got to just you know, button up. But we're going to winterize this, and we'll come back to it in the spring. So that's what I mean by winterizing it. Um, we're going to be building and strengthening teams, beginning with a prayer team. That's the only way this thing works, because it's God who moves the chess pieces, right? Increase our capacities and competencies, like how do we film, how do we do all that kind of thing with the level we're looking at. Creating helpful, engaging content that people are going to want to share. Inviting feedback from multiple perspectives along the way. Continue to learn, discern, sharpen a vision, vision, get the public role, plan, secure funding, resources, build the website, all that kind of stuff, and more. And as is the case with our Juntos initiative, <laughs> this is something we're in for the long haul. And it was so good for me to remember back, in 2007, this church was just an idea. Year after year, piece by piece, God brought you, brought others in. And if this is really of God, he's going to do the same for these other things in his timing as he does. This has potential, I really do believe, to impact generations to come. You start breaking that cycle of people are, feel trapped. You start breaking the cycle of dysfunction that gets passed down from generation to generation. And you, you haven't heard this yet online community unless you were there last week. Um, on Sunday at the 9 o'clock service, we were singing that song about the battle's already been won. We got to that line, I know how the story ends. I just saw pictures flashing all through my head of our nation and how divided it is. We had just got done talking about a kingdom divided can't what? It can't stand. This, this trajectory we're on as a nation, this might sound like hyperbole. This is the words of Jesus. It's not going to self-correct. Who's out there doing stuff to try to bring people together? Well, a bunch of people. God's moving chess pieces. Let's be part of that. Otherwise, we know how this story ends. And it's not just true for a nation. It's true for your family. It's true for your business. It's true for your team. We know how this story ends. A house divided can't stand. What could we do in Jesus' name to try to have an impact in that? So if you want to be part of this, here's how you can help. Start your ambassador training. Do a deep dive. Read Cloud's book on trust. You know, some of these other ones you've been putting out there. Do a deeper dive. Get better at blaming less. Start sharing your stories. As God opens the door on a plane or wherever, start sharing your stories with others of how that's making a difference in your life. You can sign up if you want. You can go right now, blamelessproject.org. You can put your email on the list. I'm going to tell you right now, we're not going to get back to you probably for a couple months. But if you want to get started, you can. It's kind of a very soft launch there. But if you want to get in the loop, you can. So you'll be looped in in the spring. And then I don't say this for dramatic effect. I don't say this because you're supposed to say this. I say it because it matters. Pray. And here's very specific things to be praying for. Pray for inspiration, that this is truly God-breathed. God-breathed. Pray for influencers. There's going to be a couple names I'll be sending out to the prayer list when we get to the spring. Some people, some national figures. I'm like, I want to have God move on their hearts. Be super fun investors to help us get the equipment, things like that. We'll need to get this thing going. And then pray about your own involvement. This is the most talent-laden church I've ever been a part of. So many of you have so many skills in so many different ways. And if you feel like, hey, this is something the Lord's put on my heart, we'd love to have that conversation. So let's do that right now. Let's pray, and then let's seal our time with the song. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. I really do believe that um, this is something... That is God-breathed. It's, it's of you. And I really do believe um, that that whisper of you, you could choose someone else if we're not going to run with it, but 
Lord, thank you for the honor of having a chance. Lord, we want to follow you in this. We, we don't want to create something that is um, for any other motivation than to really, truly honor you and impact this world. So, Lord, help that to be our heart. Lord, and help that to, to be felt throughout this whole journey ahead of us. We do pray for those very specific things. We pray for inspiration. We pray that these words are God-breathed, these images, this whole project. We pray for those influencers, people who you would have um, that are in positions of influence who could take this message and help toxic or cultures become less toxic and help bring people together. We pray for investors, people who could get a vision for this and help us with the equipment and the things that we'll need to get the word out. And then we pray for every individual that if you want them to be involved in this, because there's all kinds of great things, all kinds of great things we could get involved with. If this is one you want them involved with, then we pray that you give them some specific ideas of what that looks like. And then <laughs> I have to pray for my former seatmate there on that plane, nudist guy. Um, I pray, God, that someday um, in the not-too-distant future, he is on another flight, and he's going to strike up a conversation with somebody, and they're going to have either a blameless wristband or a blameless sticker. And, Father, we pray that you are going to use that to speak to him, not only that people can change, but that you're doing something, God. And we pray that that individual would open his heart to saying yes to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.